Welcome to the EV Ready Podcast, featuring industry leaders and their perspectives on electrification, hosted by EV Ready Energy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the EV Ready Podcast, and I am grateful for Rick Wilmer to uh, be our first podcast guest out in 2024. Thank you so much for joining. Really appreciate it. And in long time, no see. <laughs> Happy to be here, Chris. Good to see you. Happy New Year. Yeah. 2024 will certainly be an interesting one in the industry. And uh, I'm excited to uh, go on the ride with you and, and ChargePoint. And it'll be really interesting to see how this year ends up playing out across the industry. So much, So many things going on right now. I can tell you for sure things that will, will happen that we're not expecting to happen. <laughs> it will be a year of change, no doubt. Hey, you know, obviously we used to work together and, and you came in as the COO of ChargePoint at a really tumultuous time. It was during COVID. It was an interesting time for these, obviously for the entire world, but, you know, for, for the industry for sure. Talk to me a little bit about your, you know, when you came, the challenges that you faced when you got to ChargePoint and how you've been trying to evolve those uh, challenges over the past couple of years. Yeah. So when I got here, the, you know, emergency number one was the supply chain crisis as a result of COVID. And, you know, how do we get enough chargers built to meet the demand, which was, you know, very hyper growth type mode of demand at that point in time. So you had kind of the confluence of the two worst case situations, hyper, hyper demand along with very constrained supply chains. So to get the supply chain piece sorted out and the, the, the you know, manufacturing piece, if you get all the parts, but you don't have enough manufacturing capacity or the right partners to build your product, since we outsource our manufacturing, getting all the parts isn't going to help. So, you know, it, it wasn't one single solution to the problem. It was a whole bunch of different solutions to the problem. It had to do with rationalizing our supplier base, our supply chain, who we buy from. And in that area, what you really want to do is find suppliers that view you as a strategic account. And if they view EV charging and charge point as a strategic account, you're going to tend to get preferential treatment, which means you get the majority of the supply allocation, you get, you know, MFN pricing, you generally get treated like a strategic account. So we really looked for suppliers that would treat us like a strategic account. And that all starts with going and meeting with them and just explaining who we are. Right. I met with executives from a bunch of our suppliers that knew our name, but didn't really know what we did or how big we were or how we were differentiated in the industry. So laying all that groundwork was a priority. And then we did a similar thing with our manufacturing partners, you know, making sure they really understood what we represented to them in terms of potential future growth and the scale of this business to make sure that we've got, you know, preferential treatment, you know, that's commensurate with our size and scale and the amount of business we can drive to them. And you put all that together and we were at the kind of the tail end of COVID when I joined, even though it was still pretty bad. And we were able to get that turned around in a good, you know, three or four months. We were starting to make get to a point where we weren't facing product shortages any longer. Um, we were really now uh, getting supply and demand in balance. The other big area that I wanted to work on or that I was asked to work on, which was important to us, was the overall customer support, customer service function which is a, you know, a much longer road, much, uh, not harder, but there's a lot of work that's required to build a true world-class, what I call enterprise support organization, where we really deliver world-class support 
to all of our customers. And what makes it interesting for ChargePoint is that we're you know, dealing with everything from individual drivers that technically aren't even customers all the way through, you know, Fortune 100 corporations that deploy hundreds, if not thousands of our chargers and everything in between. So building out a support organization that could take care of all that from the minute we get a PO until long after those stations are deployed and energized and those customers are, are pleased that they made a charge point decision is a big journey we've been on since I started. I think we've made a lot of progress. It's much better than, than it was when I arrived, but we still have a lot of work to do in that area. What do you think some of the focuses are going to be related to customer support going forward that station owners and customers are going to feel in 2024? So just continuing to be more responsive, you know, answering the phone every time someone calls and making sure that they know that their case is being handled and then driving time to resolution down. Those are just obvious basic blocking and tackling things that we continue to improve on. We've made a ton of progress, but it's still not good enough. There's more room to improve. But the the other area is around an initiative we've been working on for a while, which I've talked about publicly, which is our network operations center. And this is really one of the three cornerstones of overall network uptime and network reliability. The other two, uh, just for uh, just to for sake of completeness, one is just building highly reliable, highly durable hardware, which we've invested, as you well know, Chris, a ton of money and time and effort in building reliable hardware that will last for, you know, 10 years and not, you know, the ice cold winters of Minnesota or the boiling hot summers of Phoenix, Arizona and everything in between those two places. Um, the other big piece, which we're also investing in, uh, in a major way will be, you know, this will become a lot more public as we move into this, into the, into 2024 is training for electricians. Uh, what we find today, for example, on support cases is many of our support cases today that are hardware related have to do with a, a, a bad installation as opposed to a defective product. In fact, the majority of failures we have today are due to bad installation. So getting the, the world's electricians trained on how to work with charging hardware, install it and fix it properly is a big effort for us. And that's going to be really spearheaded by a, a major investment we're making in training. But back to the network operations center, that's the third cornerstone piece of the whole network hygiene effort, which is you know, we need to know when stations are down. Now, these are IoT connected devices with a bunch of sensors. They're talking to us all the time, reporting their health, how they're doing. And that's fine, but it's inadequate. You typically, with all of our remote monitoring, can't detect physical damage. There are other types of problems that we don't always detect, but that's the one that's common. However, there are other ways to find out about physical damage that aren't relying on some station owner to call us and tell us about it. And that really centers around the driver community, which quite frankly is a very passionate community of people that is more than happy to tell us about broken stations. <laughs> they may do that through calling our driver support line. They may do report that through our mobile app. They may post on social media. So taking all those sources of data and complementing the, the data we're getting from the stations themselves and then aggregating, correlating, using machine learning to sift through that data, we can now determine a station is broken with it still being green on the map and no owner calling us. And we're now creating proactive tickets on behalf of station owners where we're calling them and saying, hey, we know you've got a problem with the station and we're going to come out and repair that for you. And we're now creating quite a few of those proactive tickets. So it's starting to pay off. The other thing we're doing there is a bunch of data analysis. So for example, simple example, we've got a station that averaged 3.7 sessions a day for the last three months, and all of a sudden it goes to zero sessions a day for three days in a row. 
that will cause us to open a proactive ticket. So there's a lot of work that's gone on in the network operations center with the idea of essentially creating proactive tickets and letting our station owners know that we've got a problem we're going to come fix before they found out about it themselves. It's funny, and I've gone on LinkedIn before, and I, I've seen you responding to individual customers who are frustrated with the uh, unique circumstance. You personally saying that, hey, like we're going to go out there and fix it. But that's your DNA. That that is, uh, you know, I think that's a big challenge in the industry in general right now. Um, consumer confidence just across the board. And, and it's funny because one of the things I was going to ask you a little bit later was was really about like how we solve that problem. And it, you know, it sounds like you're you're on your way right now. Yeah. Well. Just it starts with the DNA of caring about customers and it runs in my blood. There's nothing I care more about than customers. If I walk in in the morning, and this is a real example, I'll have you know a few emails in my inbox. I get in very early. If one is from a driver that never even paid us anything and one is from a board member, I'll deal with the driver question first and I'll reply to that individual personally. And then I will monitor that case after I pass it off internally to the right people to make sure it gets closed. As I have experienced. <laughs> Customers are everything and they've got to be wealthy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess that's a good segue. Obviously, you're CEO now and that probably comes with a, a new set of responsibilities. How's it going? It's going, you know, I'm hitting my stride. It was, uh, you know, not a plan change. It came off a disappointing quarter that we reported publicly. It wasn't, you know, exactly what I was planning to do. But when the board approached me and offered the job and I sat back and thought about it, there were a couple of things that went through my mind that led me to say yes. One was just the opportunity that's in front of us as an industry. And then specifically as ChargePoint, I think we're in a it's ours to lose in a lot of ways, um, and it, we can't mess this up. And that got me really excited. And then what got me even more excited was the team of people that we have here. Um, you know, especially my direct staff and 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 other leadership in the company. I've got such a strong, great team of people that I felt very confident that I had what I needed from a personnel standpoint. You know, to 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 do this job well. So when it happened, I you know obviously took on more responsibility. This is a I call this the loneliest job. In some ways, it's the easiest job because I have all the authority. I never have to manage through influence. On the other hand, you know, I've got a famous quote from a, a, a famous Silicon Valley CEO, and it ends with, when times get tough, you're all alone. You make the call. And that, that's what makes the job hard is you got to make some tough decisions on your own. But since I took the job a couple of months ago, I feel like I've come up to speed in the areas that I wasn't managing previously. I've become familiar with those areas. I've obviously worked with those people in the COO role. So I was somewhat familiar with what they were doing anyways. Now I'm digging into the detail. And I feel like um, I'm hitting our, hitting my stride. You know, we're working on our on our, our fiscal year starts on February 1st. So we're finalizing our fiscal 25 plan as we speak. And then we'll be uh, getting that approved by our board and then talking about that publicly in our next earnings call. So all that's coming together nicely. I'm pleased with the way that work's been going. Good for you. I'm, I'm happy for you. And ChargePoint is definitely, um, they're lucky to have you at this moment in time, but that's for sure. Yeah, I wanted to talk about, I don't know, you know, I actually don't know how, in, how into EV you were. Back in 2016, it was right around when I was learning about it as a kid out of college. But I remember back in 2016 when Trump was elected, there was this big concern that EVs were going to go away because the federal government wasn't going to support it. And what happened at that time, at least from my perspective, was the state governments almost yeah. rallied because they knew that that was happening. 
obviously it's going to be a you know a fun election year and you know not to delve into politics necessarily but how do you think um you know the potential outcome of the next election could impact we know evs are happening there's no question about that but how do you think it's going to affect the acceleration of it i don't think it'll affect it much you know even if trump gets elected and you know some of the funding Federal funding that Biden's put out in front of EV charging, you know, goes away. Hypothetically, I, again, I don't think it'll change it much. I think, as you mentioned, Chris, the states uh, have some strong initiatives to push it, regardless of what the federal government is doing. But even more importantly, market forces are driving people towards electrification. I think a lot of people care about the planet. They realize this is a major, a major piece of decarbonizing our planet is to get transportation off fossil fuels. But I also think the electric drivetrain is just so superior to the internal combustion engine. You know, for those of us that have been able to afford it and have enjoyed it, I mean, you'll never go back. It's just so much better. And I think as more and more people experience, you know, an electrified drivetrain and a modern electric vehicle, the market is going to move towards electrification just because it's better. So I don't think any government policy, whether it's supportive or ignores EV charging, is going to change things at this point in time. The penetration is now far enough along where enough people have experienced it, enough of the vehicle OEMs are converting over their factories and have clearly made major commitments to it. It may have some slowdowns and some bumps in the road like we saw late last year, but overall, this is happening as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I just actually a couple hours ago, I recorded another podcast um, with uh, an automotive performance retail agency. And I think like what we always agree on is that acceleration could be impacted by a few different things. And and we, we agree it's going to happen. But from our perspective, educating the dealers is a huge thing. Big, right? You hear this complaint all the time. You know, you walk into, again, I've got to oversimplify this, but you know, you hear the stories where someone walks into a dealer and, you know, looks at an EV on the lot and says, how do I charge that? Or how long does it take to charge it? And the dealer says, let me show you this, you know, ICE vehicle over here that he's, you know, that, that salesperson's very familiar with selling. So there's no question that that's got to happen. And I know ChargePoint has a strategy around dealerships and dealer groups and creating a strategy that drives more vehicle sales for sure. Obviously, was involved with it at a certain point in time. But yeah, I'm really curious to see as it relates to education, how quickly that happens. Because I think so many times to your point, somebody will purchase an electric vehicle. They're just not doing it because the person that's selling them the car might not be confident in that that lifestyle change. And I think once that transition occurs, sales will become a lot easier. I don't think it's necessarily a car issue. Yeah, I think the other near-term headwind we're facing is just high interest rates and the fact that EVs are generally more expensive than ICE vehicles. And you know now your car loan is a lot more expensive. And because it's a more expensive vehicle, it's a bigger loan. I think that's created some headwind as well. So I'm happy to see Tesla reducing their prices. I thought it was interesting to see BYD overtake Tesla as the world's number one EV manufacturer with clearly you know much lower cost to vehicles than what we've seen from the traditional auto OEMs that we're familiar with. But I think all of this is putting the right pressure on the industry, you know, to drive costs down, to make EVs more affordable, more comparable to ICE vehicles. And I think that learning curve is going to happen. There's no doubt about it. As an old-time operations guy, I know the more you build, the better you get and the lower your costs get. So as they continue to ramp up production, leverage their fixed costs, learn how to drive the cost out of these vehicles that are going to continue to get more cost competitive for consumers. 
Yep. Yep. And yeah, my next question for you is this, you know, with gas cars, obviously the, the calculation's easier. It's, it's a, it's a simpler, I shouldn't say it's a simpler experience, but everybody knows what the experience is for electric. There are so many other components to it. You have energy companies that are involved that are running the world. You have the auto manufacturers, you have these large electric utilities and in some way with like with government, they have to, and technology companies, they all have to converge together to build the right experience for consumers that piques their interest and, and all those things. So my question for you is related to utility companies like, you know, Avon Grid in the Northeast and auto manufacturers like Mercedes that, you, that that you're working so closely with and oil companies like British Petroleum. What's the role they're going to play over the next 10 years? And how does ChargePoint work with them? Yeah, this is a great question. You're probably on one of the topics I've been thinking most deeply about since I've become CEO. And what it looks like to me now that I've spent a lot of time, I've spent time with customers before, but I'm spending a lot more time with customers now. In, in the grand scheme of things, this, the way I'm thinking about this is charging creates a new touch point between somebody and a driver, which almost by definition is a consumer. Even if it's a fleet driver, they may be a consumer when they're not driving their fleet vehicle for work. And intimacy with the customer, with the consumer, is so critical in this digital world of omni-channel sales that watching all these constituents battle for that relationship, for this new opportunity to create intimacy with a driver that's a consumer, is fascinating. You know, I'm a, a F-150 Lightning owner, and I used to own an F-150 ICE vehicle. I have an ongoing relationship for now through my Ford Pass app. I never had that before when I owned an ICE vehicle. So is Rick going to have a relationship with Ford or is he going to have a relationship with the retail store that he shops at quite often that he has the loyalty app for that he can pay for charging through that loyalty app and now stays a little bit longer when he's in the store because his vehicle is going to take time to charge and maybe buys a little bit more stuff? Or is it going to be the hotel chain? if I'm a frequent you know, road warrior. So watching this play out to see who is going to use charging to build a strong relationship and thus loyalty and you know, uh, enhance brand identity with drivers slash consumers to me is a fascinating battle. And the advantage that we have in the market is we build the tech stack that allows these companies, these constitute, these, these institutions to do that. Whether it's someone that wants people to come you know, work at their at their company because they support EV charging or stay at their hotel or park at their parking garage or whatever the case may be. We've got the tech stack that allows these institutions to use charging to create deeper loyalty with their drivers and consumers. Now, who wins that? Who ends up being the dominant player that builds those relationships is going to be fascinating to watch play out. It's interesting because obviously for gas cars, like they, there were loyalty programs that existed, but they weren't, I don't know if this is too strong of a term, but they weren't weaponized by software. And I don't think the world has uh, fully understood how to use charging software yet in order to do that. I think everybody's trying to, they're feeling their way through it. And obviously ChargePoint is looking to enable it. And uh, I think that's like one of the big changes we'll see in the next five years is a lot of creative solutions out there beyond just, you know, uh, a, an auto manufacturer offering free charging for a period of time or whatever the case may be, like yeah. once it hits retail and other locations. What creative can you get? How integrated can you get? And curious yeah. to see how that plays out. Yeah. When you look at all the loyalty stuff that's out there today, whether it's airline points or credit card points or hotel points, or you could 
the sophistication that has been built into those programs to build consumer loyalty, you can see all this coming our way. Because this is just another opportunity to build a relationship with that consumer you care about. Absolutely. So you mentioned you're a Ford Lightning customer. So I wanted to transition over to the the Ford Next discussion. And obviously it's not just a Ford discussion anymore. You know, when it happened, I never personally thought that the Next transition would occur. It was kind of crazy to me because I always thought Tesla had such a competitive advantage owning their fast charging network and, and keeping it proprietary. And then the auto manufacturer's data on the other side and not wanting to give that away. It sort of blew my mind that the industry went over to Next, even though I personally believe it is a better experience. I, I, I don't know how you feel about that. But for me, that didn't feel like just a plug decision. It felt like something bigger was happening in the industry. And I don't know exactly what that is, but it, it feels bigger. Um, I was curious to see what your take on it was. Well, I think that from a perspective of ChargePoint, to me, this is kind of a non-event. In fact, I think it's good news because in my mind, it's going to make more charges available to more drivers, which is going to make more people comfortable buying EVs, which is just going to drive demand for what we build. Um, if I you know, go to Europe with my laptop, I don't need to take a different laptop to plug into a wall out outlet in Europe and work. It's a plug. It's a connector, right? We have them on chargers all over our parking lot as we speak today. We're shipping them today. So it's just another connector. It doesn't define the charging station by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's a much bigger deal for the auto OEMs. Um, not for us, right? For us, it's again, pretty simple to switch over to a different connector type. But for the auto OEMs, you know, to agree on one way to go, and I think the majority of them, if not all of them for North America have now agreed on NACs, it's good. It's going to make everything simpler. It's going to make all the Cars interoperate with all the charging stations, which again, in, in the end, makes just the charging network that's available to, to all the EV drivers bigger, which is good. But it goes back to what I talked about before. So now you've got all these Tesla sites available to these drivers that aren't driving Teslas. Is that because Tesla wants a relationship with those drivers so that when they buy their next EV, they're going to buy a Tesla? Again, you're back to who's going to leverage charging to build that relationship with the consumer? Who's in it? Who wants it? Yep. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I think the auto manufacturers, I'm really curious how it plays out for them, uh, just because and get your position from a charge point perspective, I think uh, as it relates to the automotive landscape, it just seems like there were competitive advantages and there were risks tied to data and, and selling cars that the industry was uh, very willing to trade off. And I didn't expect that. And I, you know, I, it made me feel like I didn't understand something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, I think in general, it's good that we've gone to one standard. I mean, you know, you think it's a better experience, that's fine. My Ford's got a CCS1 connector, it works fine. So as long as we get to one and everybody can access everything, that's, I think, uh, that the benefit of, of this battle tipping the NAX direction. Yep. And look, ChargePoint's been around forever. Uh, well, forever in the charging industry. But so much has happened over the past few years. Everybody kind of sees the, you know, the dollar signs in this industry. It's growing so fast. It's exciting. Everybody wants to be in it. And it's caused so many different market entrants that your team's dealing with all the time and trying to figure out how to remain as competitive as possible. And so I want to ask you, in 2024, what differentiates ChargePoint from everybody else? The fact that we have a full stack solution for all use cases because they all tie together, right? You go to the you know Metro Bus Authority and sell pantographs for charging buses behind the fence overnight. 
that goes well. And then all of a sudden, that city's got light duty service vehicles that they want to electrify that fleet, but they drive all over the city and they're going to park and use level two charging when the technicians are doing their work. So now you're going to put a bunch of level two chargers around the city, all part of the same account. Now they want to make those chargers available to the general public because the service vehicles aren't using them every day. So now you need to be able to provide charging to you know general public. Now they let the, the service vehicles, some of the technicians, take those vehicles at home at night because it's more efficient to start their route from home than it is from a central truck yard. So now you've got a home charger and you need to integrate with the utility and reimburse that technician for the, the money he spent on electricity at home. All right, so the fact that all these use cases ultimately tie together around a great driver experience, if you're jumping from one solution to another as you go from work to the hotel to the stadium, you know, and it's it's not the same ad app, it's not the same experience, I think it's going to really be tough on drivers. So even though somebody may have a great point solution for a specific use case, the sum of the parts is greater than you know than than the whole when it comes to providing a full stack solution that covers all use cases. And, and I, you know, I I hesitate to go to hardware because software is so important. But the element of hardware that I think, you know, when you have like a large enterprise customer and they're looking at installing charging stations and maybe they have thirty different sites with thirty different decision makers and you know the risk there is they end up having. 10 different types of hardware, six different types of software. It's a total nightmare. They're going to have to, they're going to have to reinvest in the future. The way the, uh, your, your newer products level two in DC have been, have been developed, have a lot of modularity tied to them, a lot of similarities tied to them. Do you want to talk about like how, how those products were developed, why they were developed that way and, and how it will benefit uh, station owners? Yeah. I think modularity from the perspective of a station owner, it really enables faster, lower cost service. Because if something goes down, you don't have to take out the whole station. You take out the module that is defective or was installed incorrectly and thus damaged. Um, for us, the advantage is operational, right? We have a common compute module, for example, that goes across a variety of different stations and use cases. Now, that's a common part number. We have inventory flexibility to use that on which stations are selling today, right? So for us, from an inventory standpoint, from the number of different parts we need to build in manufacturing, it simplifies our product line for us internally. But again, the real benefit for the customers is serviceability in the field. The parts are less expensive. They're easier and faster to replace. It's less expensive for inventory to be positioned in the field close to stations because you don't have to invest a ton of money in a very expensive complete charger inventory. So that's really the benefit that it that it brings to the customer. I'm really interested to see over the next few years. I think it's sometimes it's hard to predict the future. You know, you go to 3G to 4G, you're, you're gonna switch cables. Like, how can you possibly predict these things? But I think one of the challenges that a lot of folks that are buying charging stations right now are they're trying to figure out how do I make sure that my charging stations don't become obsolete. And, you know, things like non-replaceable cables are so common in the industry, I think that, yep. or, you know, how do you keep the uptime of your station, you know, in a fleet situation, obviously, in many cases, if you have a fast charger, it's because you need it. If it's at a car dealership, you probably need it too. Um, like what's the redundancy built into these stations it is such a critical piece. Can you just speak to the redundancy that's been built in some of the um, charge point products? Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot of redundancy built in, generally speaking. And, you know, you're familiar with what we do before we put a product into production and put it into the market. I mean, we 
the amount of money we've invested in not only building in redundancy, but then testing it to make sure that it actually works, that all the failovers work, that it survives in the coldest temperature you could experience in Minneapolis and the hottest temperature you could experience in Phoenix. And it does that for 10 years in a dust storm or being pelted by rain or snow. We do all that internally. And that is what, again, back to the cornerstone of reliability, that is one of the keys is building a highly reliable, highly durable product. The analogy I use is imagine buying two new iPhones and taking one to Minneapolis and throwing it on the street and then take your other one to Phoenix and leave it on the street, then come back 10 years later and see if they still work, right? That's what we're trying to do. It's a hard technical challenge, no doubt. But I think we're the leader in the market because of the time, the brilliance of our engineering work and the facilities that we've put in place to actually do these tests. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. So, full disclosure, people who are listening to this probably know this, but I worked at ChargePoint. I left ChargePoint. I left ChargePoint to start my own company. And the premise, Rick, was that EV charging in general is oversimplified. There are so many components. I think many times it's it's very it's treated as a transaction. It's treated as commoditized, but it's much more confusing and complex in so many different ways. Somebody installs a charger, their electric bill goes up by $10,000 a month. They think they have an energy efficiency problem. It, it can affect your reputation if you install something. Uh, and you know, the, the EV community has opinions and how it performs is a factor. And then does it actually solve the problem for you? And is it the most efficient way to do the thing that you are trying to do? All those different things. And so I was hoping you could talk about all of the things outside of what makes ChargePoint revenue and how you try and provide those solutions to your end users. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to it. And again, it's all software, right? And it's again, tied back to having a driver, starting with a driver-centric approach, where if, you know, Chris, you're an EV driver, I'm an EV driver, whoever's an EV driver, if I'm going to go from place to place to place, to work, to home, to the hotel, to the mall, to the parking garage, I want a seamless experience that I can rely on, right? So starting with that driver and making sure that experience is awesome is the foundational piece that everything we do is based on that. And that's everything from ease of use to making sure that you can find, use, and pay for charging conveniently that's as, it's as simple as possible. That is just the core from which we build everything. And let me amend my question a little bit. How do you make the station owner experience awesome? Yeah. So I think there, you need to understand what the station owner is trying to accomplish with EV charging, right? So again, I think if it's commercial, you know, in all those subcategories I've I've rattled off, been many more that I haven't even mentioned, right? They're typically trying to get people to come to their place and stay there, right? Whether it's an employee, a shopper, whatever the case may be, they want them to come there. And there, you want to be able to allow that to happen. And then as some of the leading edge retailers that are dealing with drivers that are consumers, you want to now start to build technology that allows them to use that touch point to build a stronger relationship with that consumer. Workplace is, is, is slightly different than that. I mean, again, you want to have enough charging there that works reliably, you know, to attract the kind of people to come work for you that you want to come work for you. Even ChargePoint today, with all the chargers in our parking lot, I'm getting complaints that we don't have enough, right? <laughs> you show up after 8.30 on a, on a come to work day and it's not easy to find a charger even here with as many as we have in our parking lot. You know, so then I think in the in the fleet use case, right, you get into the mission critical use cases, which is if if 
that vehicle doesn't go when it's supposed to go, it materially impacts their business, whether they're delivering goods or people. Their reliability is paramount. You have to charge that vehicle so it can, it can do its route when it's supposed to do its route, you know, quickly followed by cost, right? How do I minimize the cost of the chargers, the construction, the make ready, and then obviously the ongoing use of energy uh, after that? All that comes into the equation. That was, you know, my experience, you know, when I, when I worked at ChargePoint and my experience now, and I think it'll continue to be this way for a while, is the operational cost element of charging and for fleets, for sure. For fleets, it's a really big deal. But the way that the utility charges station owners, and I'm not, in the, I'm not saying the utilities are doing anything wrong. It's just kind of the way that, that things work. And there's where there's a problem, there's a solution. But that is generally, I think, like the most misunderstood element of charging that I see when I talk to station owners. Where you know, and sometimes the focus on cost is focused on the cost of a, a product, mm -hmm. uh, a service. And an installation, and that's, I don't know, I would estimate 40% of their five-year total cost of ownership. And it's just so critical to help customers understand that that piece of it as well. Exactly. Exactly. If you shop for the cheapest charger that you think meets your use case, you are not thinking about this right. Yeah. Yeah. There's other ways to make up costs and have a better experience. And yes. um, yeah, you know, maybe there's a one-off situation, but in general, you know, it's just, it's important to you know work with a quality product and a quality partner. Yep. So, you know, you kind of already, you already talked about a lot of this already, but um, just to harp on it again, like we hear about it in the news. You, there's articles about it. There was an article that came out on, Elec I love Electric. I think they do a really good job kind of reporting on the news in the EV industry. And they reported on uh, S&P Global Mobility, who came out with a stat. It was that 50% of non-Tesla drivers are looking to either return their electric car or they're looking to get their secondary car as a gas car. And primarily it's due to, you know, station station issues or it actually it's really driver experience to your point, all about the driver. And so, you know, you've spoken a lot about the driver experience and making sure that stations are up and running and, and, and all of those things. Would you consider that your number one focus in 2024, or is there anything else that that rivals that topic? So, with respect to everything we do that you know our customers enjoy, that is a huge priority. And again, I touched on you know the key things we're working on there. Continue to build very durable, reliable hardware. I'm big focus on training electricians and technicians going into next year, along with continuing to enhance that network operations center. All that together will continue to drive up network reliability, network uptime. But there's also a lot of work to do on just ease of use, right? We track a metric, you know, called zero energy sessions where a driver goes to a station that's working and they still can't charge their vehicle. And a lot of times it's just due to drivers not knowing how to do things, what sequence in which to do things, which is, in my opinion, perhaps shame on us. We need to make this an easier, more intuitive thing for a driver to do if they're paying with a card or their phone or, or their digital wallet or whatever the case may be. We want to make sure that it's easy for them to do that and it's intuitive. So I think there's innovation to be had in that area as well. Yeah. What's the role ISO 15118? Do you think that will be widely adopted? Do you think that'll be used commonly? What's the future of that look like? I sure hope so because it's an awesome experience when it works the way it's supposed to. <laughs> For anyone who listens to this podcast, who happens to be in the Atlanta area, go visit the Mercedes Fast Charge site at their headquarters in Sandy Springs. That is the penultimate 
charging experience from a driver perspective as far as I'm concerned. It is. What they did is amazing. I am so impressed with the ability to reserve a, 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 a port, to know which port that is when you pull into that place, to be able to pull right up, plug in your vehicle, no tapping, no nothing. You just play. It's easier than filling up your car with gas. I mean, it is a phenomenal experience. And if you're a Tesla driver, uh, you know that you can just kind of plug in your car and the session's initiated. And so that's what ISO 15118 will assist with. It'll allow yeah, exactly. the, the station to connect with the vehicle and automatically start the session as opposed to, you know, you're talking about ease of ease of charging where with a lot of other charging stations, you have to initiate the station yourself. And if you don't get educated from the dealer and how to do that, it can be a little bit of a pain in the butt. Yeah. And if you don't do it in the right sequence, if you pay before you plug or plug before you pay or whatever, you know, you, you can end up not charging your car and it can be very frustrating. Yep. Yep. Well, my, my last question for you, a little bit of optimism uh, for everybody. I generally tend to be an op optimistic person. What are you most excited about this year? It can be EV. It can be anything. Oh, just to see this industry continue to evolve and grow. I mean, it's going to change. There's things that are going to happen that none of us can anticipate at this moment. And, you know, when that happens, how we react to it or take advantage of it is going to determine, you know, who wins and loses. But, you know, I've been in, in, in tech for my entire career. And back in the early days, I was part of, you know, NASA industries like this when there were, you know, 80 competitors all trying to do something similar. And, you know, 30 years later, there's three, you know, and we're in those early innings. We're watching different ideas succeed, others fail, companies run out of money, companies go out of business, companies getting bought. So just being part of this, this exciting nascent development of this market, watching everything change and come together and some things not work, it, it's just exciting. Just being part of it is exciting. I always tell customers the beginning of most conversations, kind of in a joking way, but in a very honest way, is like, it is the Wild West right now in this industry. It's it's a little bit chaotic everywhere. And, um, you know, some people don't like that. I personally do. <laughs> no, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's on us to help you know, get that chaos mitigated. But yeah. I think there's early adopters that enjoy that. And then you get to the majority, the mainstream market, they probably don't really enjoy that very much. So yeah. it's up to us in this industry to move through that early adopter chaotic phase and get things standardized and stabilized and easy to use. So everyone out there continues to get comfortable with electrification electrified drivetrains, and we decarbonize this planet because that mission is really important. Yep. Amen. Well, Rick, appreciate the time uh, and talking about all these different things, and I'm sure we'll be in touch again soon. Yeah, it was great to see you, Chris. Congratulations on your new company and good luck with all that, and I, I am sure we'll talk again soon. Yes. Thank you so much.